Greetings and salutations. It's me, Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com, and this podcast has murder written all over it. I'm not joking this time. I sat down with a man who's made death his living. Retired Dayton homicide detective Doyle Burke handled more than 800 murder investigations during his 30-year career with that department. I'm talking about some of the most high-profile cases the city has ever seen. JoLann Ritchie, the Christmas killings, the mom who microwaved her infant daughter, a triple X murder, and a Satan worshiper, to name a few. Dole and I get into some of those cases on this podcast. He dives deeper into them in his new book, Death as a Living, an inside look into the world of death investigation. He wrote the book with longtime Dayton Daily News police and court reporter Lou Greco, who's a, who's a great friend of mine. They are taking pre-orders for the book now. Doyle told me how a 16-year-old girl was the hardest person he's ever interviewed, why a judge told him to lie in court, and how he tricked the media in order to read a child killer. The things people do to each other can be very shocking. The What Had Happened Was podcast is a product of Dayton.com, sponsored by Cox Digital Marketing. Let this trusted name in advertising help you find solutions to your digital needs. Rate us and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you find your favorite shows. Now, here's my talk with Detective and Dayton native Doyle Burke, currently Chief Investigator for the Warren County Coroner's Office. So, you ready for this or what? I'm ready. All right. So, thanks a lot for coming in here. I appreciate you coming all the way from Warren County. <laughs> that seems like a million miles away, but it's not. I appreciate you having me. I saw in the promo for the book that you said you saw a murder when you were nine years old? Yeah, I did. Quite unexpectedly. I, I grew up in the east end of Dayton. actually lived on Pleasant Avenue, which dead ends into Wilburite High School. This was many, many years ago, and uh, <laughs> uh, the new part of the school hadn't been built, and the football team practiced where the uh, new school now sets. Okay. Uh, and we'd always go up and sit on the hill, watch the football team practice, and that was a typical night, and we were doing that again, and this one... I don't even know how old he was, to be honest with you. I'd say probably 16 years old, 17 years old, which is causing problems. And the coaches and assistant coaches are trying to get him off the field, and he wouldn't leave. And one of the bigger coaches just kind of picked him up and put him over his back, was carrying him off the field, and the kid pulled out a knife and stabbed him in the back and killed oh him. Oh, my God. That oh, was, my God. That was an eye-opener, and it was kind of shocking, kind of scary. But at that age... You didn't really know the full impact of it. I didn't know any of the people involved, but I realized what had happened. So we just kind of sat there and watched the police and the medics come. And then the guys in the suit came and uh, it was interesting. And I had no idea that someday that might be me, but it was, uh, you know, I thought, I thought about that once I was in the police academy, I thought, you know, that could have been me there doing that. Right. And it probably has been you. It has been me many, many times, just not there. Yeah, because uh, when, I, when I first came here, you were working on the, as a detective on the Homicide Squad. Yes. Is that why you think you became a detective, that whole incident, or did it have anything to no, do with it? No, I actually was taking engineering courses at Wright State University. I was going to be uh, an engineer. I was working with what they call night stock crew at Kroger's before they had 24-hour stores. And one of the guys working there was a moonlighting cop and he said hey you ought to come out and ride with me one day i thought okay that'd be kind of neat so i did and that was it i mean then the next day i withdrew from my classes oh, wow. and uh, started studying up for the police exams i took kettering's dayton's and ohio state police they were all giving tests in that same time frame 
fortunately for me, not that the other two agencies wouldn't have been great, Dayton was the first one to call. And uh, man, what an eye-opener that was. I've lived in this city my whole life. I had no idea the things that went on in the city. But I went through the police academy. Everybody goes through the police academy and everybody starts out as a uniformed officer. And I was very happy in that role. I would have done my whole time in a role as a uniformed officer. It's It's an excellent job. And one thing led to another. Once you're allowed to go out on your own without a training officer, I had a choice of three to 11 shift or midnights. And I chose midnights really out of convenience because I thought that'll uh, give me a chance to kind of play with my days. If I want to do something in the morning, right. I can sleep in the evening, you know, vice versa. And I was used to working midnights yeah, uh, the, for my other part. job. Yeah. yeah. And it was a whole nother group. Yeah. And the guys on midnights were, I, I, I call them the TV cops. The guys that were like bigger than life police right. officers. It was really neat. And I was just, like I say, I was tickled to be a part of that and stay a part of that. Then we got our first homicide call, where obviously the uniformed officers were the first responders right. in. And one of the guys that I really respected turns to me and goes, it's about to get real. And that's one of the chapters in the book. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, the homicide guys are coming out. You think we're something else? Uh, what do these boys get here? And they got there. <laughs> and three guys in impeccably pressed suits. They had the respect of the guys that I respected. And they went in and they just took control. Everybody knew they were in charge. They got the job done. And I looked at that and I said, uh, that's me. That's I, you. I, I don't yeah. want to be chief. I don't want to be. I want to be a homicide detective. And I just started working, reading whatever books I could on uh, investigation and blood pattern interpretation, just things like that. And one thing led to another. And uh, there was an opening in the detective section. And just like you start in uniform, when you go to the detective section, you start on a squad, you don't start on homicide. Right, you start on like banking or, or something more. like that. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I started on residential burglary, which was, it was good. I learned a lot from there, made it to the violent crimes unit on robbery squad. And at the time, there was some transition on the homicide squad. Guys were retiring, and they were going to get some new people in, and they were allowing other detectives to go out on calls with them. Right. And I did that, and one thing led to another, and I have to laugh. It was uh, 1985. I was temporarily assigned to homicide, and I stayed there for 22 years. (laughs) (laughs) Big, big temporary. temporary. Yeah. So, what was it about it to be a homicide detective? Things come in people's mind when you say homicide detective. You think about Law and Order, or you think about some of these cop shows, or whatever. What was it actually like? It was not for everybody. It was a very demanding job, but a very rewarding job. I always said I got lucky. I was put on homicide very early in my career, actually. How old were you? Well, I had seven years on, so uh, 29. Okay. Very early in my career. And you can't go anywhere else. You know, people say, oh, you lasted 22 years on homicide, working 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. How'd you do it? And my answer is, where do you go from there? Right. I mean, what not to disparage other squads or, or crimes or anything like that. Certainly, if my house gets broken into, that's the biggest crime in America. Right. To that's me. the way people feel. But yeah, it just doesn't have the same level of importance to you as an investigator after you do something this intense. And this is it, it just the totality of the job. You've got to look at the worst part of life, which is death in violent ways. And you've got to take that and try to figure out what happened. And after you figure out what happened, try to figure out who did it. And it just never ends. Then try to get that person who did it. Try to get them to admit they did it or get evidence against them that says that they did it. And you're still not done. 
Then you've got to get it into court. You have to, and we were in court constantly. I mean, you have so many trials. And why not? I mean, murder, which is the most typical, there's many, many different categories of homicide. Aggravated murder right. down to negligent homicide. Murder is kind of the big boy just under aggravated murder. And it carries a mandatory 15 to life. If you plead guilty, you're getting 15 to life. If you decide to roll the dice and you're convicted, you're getting 15 to life. Right. So why not go to trial? So we're in court a lot. That is another thing that is not for everyone. Some of the best police officers and detectives I know, they just freeze up in court. It's just nobody likes that witness stand, but it's... Well, yeah, yeah you get questioned about something that you know. Oh, you get yeah, questioned about ways, stuff you don't know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. If you like are doing the detective work and you know what happened... Right. Or at least you believe you know right. what happened. And then somebody is like, well, that's not how it happened. You know, trying to, that would be like really You constantly to have do. to kind of be on your toes and get an idea about where the defense is trying to take you. And nothing against the defense attorneys. I uh, Everybody laughs. Wow, he, you know, it was really grueling. That's their job. I mean, right. I, I don't want anybody giving me grief for doing my job, and I certainly won't give them grief for doing theirs. And I, and, I yeah, you need them. You have to have it. You have to have checks and balances period. And in crimes such as this, you need a good attorney. You need a good defense attorney because you don't want an innocent man wrongly convicted. You don't want to win and have them come back and say what's called ineffective assistance to counsel and say, hey, look, you gave me a dime store attorney. I didn't have a chance. And you go and do it again. And no. it really is life and death, no matter how you look at it. It is. is. If somebody kills somebody, their life is it changes more, more yeah. lives than just the victims. And right. that's, that's, very, that's a good observation because a lot of people don't realize there are many, many more people affected than just that victim. For sure. The toughest crime you've covered, would you say? Or oh, that? boy, I tell you, it's hard to say because you really can't rank tragedies. Right. But there's some that stick with you, and there's a number of them that stick with me. One of them in particular, Samantha Ritchie, another one that just kind of grabbed the headlines forever. I was out of town on vacation when that first started with her being missing, and it was on national news then because it paralleled the Susan Smith case where she had drowned two of her children and was now going to trial. Well, now here was another mother on TV pleading for her missing child. You know, you turn the TV on, you look at that, and it's sad that you become that kind of jaded, but I just, right. I'm like, oh, she killed her. She so you killed. knew right away that she killed the baby? I mean, that's your first thought. It's your first thought. You hope for the best, but you kind of know that child is not coming back. And one thing led to another, came back home, we got involved in the investigation, and it was just one of those cases where you saw that picture of uh, Samantha Ritchie with her little pigtails, and it was on every poll in Dayton. You know, somebody right. had taped up or stapled up a flyer on every DPNL poll, RTA poll, and that just stuck with your mind in your in kind of your memory when we pulled her out of that pit with what she looked like then after four days. And it just you don't forget those. Right. Uh, I won't say that's the worst case I ever worked, but it's certainly one of the most memorable. Another one that really sticks with me for a number of reasons uh, was Anthony Dyer, young 16-year-old uh, young man who was beaten to death and stripped of his clothing and dumped over in Wolf Creek during the middle of winter by his friends who were right. in the gang, the gangster disciples or folks gang, uh, because he disrespected the leader's girlfriend, allegedly. And see, I don't think a lot of people even know about that one. That one, that one was kind of under the radar a little bit in that it took a long time. Uh, and we did 
go from one to another. We ended up making seven arrests, getting seven convictions on that, the whole gang. And there was a lot of work to that. It wasn't as sensational as some right. of the others. Did that, does that bug you that the media, you know, me included probably, pick up on the ones but don't pick on, up on the other ones? Because, like, you know, when I used to, like I said, cover cops, you'd always be like, well, why isn't this a bigger deal? You know? Yeah, it's it's... I mean, that strikes a note with me. It really does because what I, I, you never know what's going to be of interest to the public. And I know that's the position of the media, and, I, and we understand that. We actually have a pretty good working relationship with the media. Obviously, you know, we can't tell you everything, and, and we know you've got to tell what you do know. But I don't think anybody puts out misinformation on purpose from either side. But it's just, yeah, what makes one more important than the other? I don't think it really makes one more important than the other, but more newsworthy than the other. And this one was terrible, but it, it wasn't one of those where we make the arrest and we're walking away. It's like we're making an arrest every month or so, and people have forgotten about it by then. And I think one of the things that makes it more memorable to me was the young boy's mother, who's just a good working-class mother, did everything she could, did everything right, and her son's still dead. I really feel, you know, I feel for the family, and that's not necessarily a big sensational story. And when I say it kind of resonates with me, I, you hit a good point. What makes something, you know, more sensational? When I was writing the book and my wife's looking through the chapters, and she's a prosecutor in Greene County, so, I mean, she's not new to this, and she goes, where is the microwave baby? Right, yeah. And I said, well, I didn't write a chapter on that. She goes, are you kidding me? Yeah. She microwaved her baby to death. I'm like, but it wasn't that, it was horrible, but it wasn't that interesting an investigation. She goes, no, you got to write a chapter yeah, on that. Yeah, you need to write goes, a chapter on that. You don't understand. You're, you're too jaded. So I wrote a chapter on it, and that was one of the four chapters we sent out to be test-read. And that was one of their favorite chapters. Well, yeah, because that was just, like, ridiculous. It was just, uh, yeah, unheard of, and I understand that, but I'm like, it was another one of those just kind of drug and drug and drug. How Did you know from the beginning what happened to the baby? What it was, was her name? I can't remember her name right off the... Uh, uh, the Paris mother. Talley was Paris the baby, Talley. and uh, China Arnold was the mother. China Arnold, uh, who appealed and appealed and appealed. Yeah. yeah, and there are so many clues. Even in the book, I say, you know, you can't ignore your police intuition, but it's not evidence. You have to prove what happened. More so, I mean, the, the burden of proof is no more in this case than any other case, but it is. In reality, we know you've got to be right. Her initial statements were not right. right. It, it just led you to be suspicious of her. But you can't tunnel vision yourself on just that because anything is possible. Samantha Ritchie was the same way. It was one of those where... They live in a depressed area. There's a drug dealer down the street that knows the mother. There's a pedophile down the street. Right. This is a little girl. Cute little girl, right? Yeah. And out at 1 a.m., you know, you go in your most promising direction. You still investigate everything else, but everything kept coming back, coming back home, coming back to the mother. The story wasn't right. So one of the things we did in that was the body, finding the body. Since the suspicion was on her, it was a media frenzy. It looked like NASA. I said in my book when I walked in there, one of the uniform crews said, welcome to hell. And I said, it's good to be back, I think, but it looks like NASA. All the different uh, cameras and stuff. Cameras and satellite dishes on the trucks and whatnot. See, I wasn't here doing that whole thing. but Oh, yeah. it, was, it was nationwide, mm -hmm. again, because it paralleled Susan Smith. Susan Smith is a done deal is going to trial. Let's see where this one goes. So it was piggybacked on every national news agency. And so we thought we'd use that to our advantage. We actually used the media, <laughs> unknowing to them, but... Pardon the brief interruption. Doyle's going to tell us how he used the media in just a second. 
But first, I wanted to remind you that the What Had Happened Was podcast is produced by Dayton.com, and we are in the middle of an election season. Not that one. That one already happened. Dayton.com is seeking nominations for our annual Best of Dayton contest. It's a People's Choice Award. You are invited to submit nominations for your favorite people, places, and things, including businesses and restaurants, through November 26th on Dayton.com. We have 130 categories ranging from best burger to best view to best restaurant and best podcast. Wink, wink. We've already had more than 60,000 nominations and it's not too late to get yours in and get yours in often. You can nominate as many times as you want to. Actual voting starts on December 5th and goes into December 22nd. Winners will be announced during a special live call-in show hosted by yours truly and Todd from WHIO on January 6th. It's going to be on WHIO. Now, Doyle is going to tell us how he used the media to catch a kid killer. Sent a few guys out, just haul out of here, say we think we found the body. I forget exactly where it was. We went. All the media crews went followed. There. A couple of us stayed back to stay with her. And, and watch the monitors. And when they saw the uniform crews and the detectives and whatnot pulling up, I think it was Eastwood Park, pulling up to Eastwood Park, she turned around and started talking to somebody else. She knew the body wasn't there. <gasps> really? Everybody else was transfixed to that monitor. Are they going to find her? Am oh, I going to see them? so interesting. And she just, once she saw they were at Eastwood Park, she just turned and started talking to her friend and walked away. So she was that, it, wow. It, that, again, is not evidence. But it tells but you that's something. a big clue. That's yeah. a big clue. Yeah, because you would think, oh, my God, did they find her? If that was my yeah. child, I would be glued to that set. I'd be headed that direction. Right. And you would be, too. Right. You would get. You would follow it because, like you say, you but have all these But if I knew she away, wasn't there. You would have no reason totally to be Totally different. That's crazy. That is nuts. How do you deal with a person like that when you know that she did it? Because I would be like, hey, you did it. I yeah. Would her. Or, or the, court, the court frowned on that. Uh, <laughs> I was strangling them. Yeah, strangling them does not work. Uh, she was one of the tougher interviews I've ever done. And and everybody on Homicide prides himself in interviews. And we would get, I always said, we would get a confession occasionally. We'd get a live fashion most of the time. And a live fashion is as good as a confession sometimes. And sometimes it's all you can get in a live fashion is, well, I did it, but... Right. Here's the justification. Yeah. Yeah. We always tried to get them to say something. And that is kind of a dying art form anymore in that technology is great. The thing, the resources we have now. Blood evidence and all that DNA stuff. But you have lost that. Let me talk to you. Let me get you into a room and let me confront you with what you've done and how we're going to show it. And you can't give up your whole case. And you, even though you're allowed to use some subterfuge, you're allowed to lie. Man, you've got to be careful. You can't get caught in a lie, even though legally you can. Let's say you uh, you wore gloves, and I say, we've got your fingerprints on the murder weapon. You're thinking, no, you don't, and now I know everything else you're saying is a lie. Oh, so I see what you mean. We tried instead to just put some pressure. Hey, the public needs to know. You need to you need to confess, feel better. All, you know, everybody is different. Some people had never heard the word no. Some people just run rampant, and they needed an authority figure. Some sit there, and you pat them on the back, and you understand. And I would do the same thing in the same situation, whatever it takes. You just have to be a chameleon. But I actually left that interview room with my partner 
several times and said, she may be too dumb to confess. Okay. She may be so, you know, just polarized. I don't think she understands. We've got a pretty good case against her now. I want her to say she did it. I just, just for me, if nothing else, I want her to say she did it. And ultimately she did. Mm-hmm. But you think she was too stupid to realize that you're trying to give her... Is it an out you're trying to give her? No, like a you don't really try what? to give them an out because if you try to give them an out, that can work against you in court, too. Mm-hmm. Well, didn't you promise her that if she said something, you, you would... And, and we don't have that authority. But you basically promise her she'll feel better about Feel better, it. Yeah. things like that, in, you know, intangibles that we're allowed to do. Did she ever could say why she did it? or The reason that she gave was the first blow was accidental. And after that, it was kind of a mercy killing for lack of a better term. I don't know. I doubt that's what happened. But she admitted it. We had her partner there, Ernest Vernell Brooks, Vern Brooks. He had cracked long before her. Right. Uh, I mean, this was in the book. I said Brooks was a career criminal. This was way out of his comfort zone. He was visibly shaken. Once we got on to him and he realized he told the truth. When I first came here, I came in as a night cops reporter. Some of the stuff you wrote about in the book, I was actually like a young reporter, like the Satan thing, the Satan crime. Uh, Gator? Yeah. Yeah. I remember going to one of those houses. I think it was the older couple's house where he killed okay. the older people. Yeah, Arlie and Mayfugate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And see, a lot of that stuff I've kind of like um, pushed to the back of my head completely, yeah. and I can't remember details. But you like lived it intimately into the, the point where you had to advocate for the dead person. So it was like more than just thing that kind of... How do you keep that from changing who you are after all these cases? Because you did hundreds of cases, right? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you know, when I retired, and I never kept track of numbers or statistics or anything like that. I just mm-hmm. didn't do that. One of my friends did. And for my retirement, it said that I'd investigated over 864 homicides. I always say, well, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. So just by volume, I have to know a little bit. But I always worked with good people, and that's a help because it is a great responsibility. But when you know you have good people around you, that kind of takes a little of the burden off, that you have somebody as a sounding board, and you truly do work together as a team on homicide more than any other squad. But I think more directly to answer your question, you have to have a life. You have to go home, and I'm not saying that you don't continually think about this because you do. It's just a fact of life. You can't see what we see and go home and say, now I'm dropping the curtain and I remember this no more. But you have to have interests, family, that you can get away from it. But then you have to be ready to get right back into it. Yeah, because it's thing like you never really do because you can be called at a drop of the hat over a homicide. Oh, it's uh, middle of the night or anything and, else. And that's in the book, too, on how many different times, you know, it became commonplace. A daddy will be back in a little while or we'll have Christmas dinner after daddy gets back home or we'll do this or we'll do that. Uh, there again, you just try to go to all your kids' functions. You you do everything you can, and uh, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Uh, death never takes a holiday. And that's <laughs> just, a dead on truth, unfortunately. Just, and sometimes uh, it hits around the holidays. Well, and you had yeah. you had to laugh when I first came on the department. You're with a training officer, and just so happened that my training officer's day off schedule included Christmas, so I got Christmas off the very first year as a police officer. I never got another Christmas off. Ever. Oh, really? Period. Oh, that's funny. Is it because stuff always happens? Yeah, something always happened. And including the one that happened was the Christmas killing. Yes, around. yes. And you were on the team that put that whole thing together? <clears throat> yes. Why is that one that Dayton still thinks of, and it's still like more of a sore alive than a lot of the other ones? A lot of it is 
people in any city the size of Dayton, they get kind of numb to a lot of this. Okay, a, a body was found, uh, this was found, uh, this, this guy murdered his wife. It unfortunately becomes everyday news, if not reporting on Dayton, on somewhere else around. The Christmas killings, I think, hit a note, A, because it was Christmas. I mean, that's, that always makes anything bad worse. Right. But because their victims were so random and truly, truly innocent victims, didn't know them, nothing, a lot of their victims didn't do anything wrong, complied with every demand, and still got killed. I think that scared a lot of people that I could be walking down the street and this group pull up and kill me. The fear of not being safe in your own community, I think, is really what kind of accelerated that to a new level. And I guess we should tell people what the Christmas killings was. you want to tell them what it, what it was? It, it was a group. They called themselves the Downtown Posse, a group of two adults. When I say adults, I believe they were 18 and 19, and, and the rest were 16, 17 years old. Got together and just decided to go on a killing spree. You've got several different killers in my book, mass murderers, like Sammy Moreland, who killed five of his family members, Larry Gapin, uh, who killed three people. Those are mass murderers, multiple victims, one place, one occurrence. Serial killers, like Daryl Ferguson, nicknamed Gator, we talked about earlier. He killed multiple victims over a period of time, with some time in between, at different locations. Spree killers, and I always say spree killers are like, uh, you know, serial killers on crack. Okay. Uh, they kill for fun. Uh, no okay. rhyme or reason. They kill for fun. And they're the most dangerous, obviously. That's the only thing you can come with with the Christmas killings. They were just for fun. No, no other. We didn't even know about the first victim. The first, the very first victim never came to light until we made the arrest. Really? Because uh, he was in the house, he right? He was in the house and mm-hmm. not discovered until after we made the arrest. So... The uh, first victim, we believed, was Danita Gallette in the uh, little phone booth. No rhyme or reason, no enemies, no drug usage. Not, there's nothing. Just an Pure innocent fun. lady shot and killed for no reason. Her shoes were stolen. The ammunition is what really linked it. The blazer ammunition, it's a uh, aluminum-cased ammunition. It's not typically seen, and it just linked up. And then one by one by one, it continued to, to link up. We started getting some vehicle descriptions, different things, and luckily... We ended it when we did. It would still be going on. And it was after we made the arrest and we uh, did the interviews with the suspects that we discovered the last two victims, which were members of their own downtown posse. They had executed for fear they were going to come to us. Do you think eventually they probably would have turned on each other anyhow? I think eventually, yeah. They would have imploded. Dumb kids anyway. With yeah. Crazy intent. No rhyme or reason. They got virtually nothing for what they did other than the satisfaction of it. You did it in Dane for so long, and now you work for the coroner's office, which is a little different. Are there any cases that got away that you that still kind of hunt? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't solve every case. Uh, it's just not possible. And, yeah, those are the ones that hurt. I think the ones that hurt even more are the ones where you have a really good idea, more than a good idea. You know who did it, but the evidence just isn't there. And what you run into is, do you urge the prosecutors to take that case, and then they lose. And if they lose, it's over. He can walk out of that courtroom and say, I did it and got away with it. You can't try him again. So those are the ones where you know they did it, but you got to sit back and hope for something later on down the road. And it does happen. This is another one I put in the book. The only time I was told to lie in court (laughs) by a judge. 
and uh, you were told to lie. Told to lie in court by the judge, and I still find that hilarious. Wait a minute, uh, you were told to lie. Yeah, the judge told me to lie. Okay. It with the agreement of the prosecution and the defense, and the way that happened was, uh, we got a call from West Palm Beach, Florida. They said we've got a guy here. His last name's Goodrich. He killed an exotic dancer. He won't talk to us. He's making phone calls to these three numbers in Dayton. Can you call? Can you make a stop by and see who's there? It was all family members. So we go, me and my partner. Hey, Dayton Police Homicide, need to talk to you about the girl he killed. Oh, I knew you'd be coming. Yeah, okay, what can you tell me about that? Oh, man. It was probably 10 years ago, and she starts relaying a homicide that was unsolved that was mine. Lady dumped in Wolf Creek, naked, prostitute, high-risk victim. Those are hard to solve right. because of the interaction with so many strangers and the criminal element. And we worked it and come up with nothing. One of the things that made that stay in my mind was it was a 4th of July holiday, and her fingers, the fingernails had been cut to where even some of the tips of the fingers were missing. Get out of here. It's horrible. So, so somebody was trying to disclose, like take away her identity. Yes and no, because the fingerprints were there. So that was another thing that kind of befuddled us. But this lady says, yeah, when he came back, he said he had picked up this prostitute and she had tried to rob him. So he beat her with a tire iron, but it was okay because even though she scratched him, because his mother said he had visible scratches, he said, it's okay. I cut her fingernails off so he can't get DNA. I'm like, who else would know that? That was not something we ever released. So we fly down to West Palm Beach. We go in. We get his confession. West Palm Beach detectives say, well, he obviously likes you guys. He won't talk to us. Here's the nutshell version of our case. See what you can do. So we went in and got the confession from him on theirs. So now comes the trial in West Palm Beach. We fly down there to testify. I take the stand, raise my hand, blah, blah, blah. Defense attorney says, I object. We need to take a recess. I want to meet in chambers. Go back. Defense attorney says, there is no way. He can say he's a homicide detective from Dayton, Ohio, and the jurors are not going to put together he killed somebody else. Right. And the prosecution says, we've been through a motion to suppress. The confession was obtained legally. It's a confession. We're using it. So the judge pondered it for a minute. And he goes, somebody get this guy a badge. He got me a West Palm Beach badge. He goes, oh. when he asks what you do, you can talk about all your background, all your, you know, what makes you a credible witness. He goes, but you're a West Palm Beach homicide detective. Oh, wow, because, that's interesting. Because if you lie about anything else, it's perjury. I'm good. <laughs> so, oh, that is so crazy. So it was done with the agreement of everybody. I still just find it hilarious that the judge and everybody said, sure, go sure, lie, 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 lie about it. Lie about but it makes sense point, yeah. because that confession needed to come in. But the defense is right. It would have been overturned. Well, how can you let a guy from Dayton come in? Because it'll put yeah, in that bad I just happened to, to be driving by and thought I'd see if I could get this guy to confess. <laughs> uh, to a crime that doesn't yeah, have nothing yeah, to do with Yeah, we're not that good. Yeah. So was he convicted two of the one up here? Yes. Convicted of both. What has this whole thing taught you about like people living and dead, working so intimately with death? You know, uh, bad things happen to good people. I know it's a cliche, but it does. Bad things happen to bad people, too. Lifestyle has a big role in this. You know, you run the streets selling dope, dealing dope, robbing dope dealers and stuff. You're going to get killed. You can also be just like some of the Christmas killings victims. You can be an innocent person minding your own business, even more so today, and be killed. How many times you see on the news, way back when, mass shootings were almost unheard of. Now, unless there's five or six dead, you don't, it's on page nine. Exactly. Uh, it's unfortunate. It's yeah, crazy it's, is what it is. This touches everybody. And it, just like I, I've said before, 
if you go home and you find crime scene tape around your neighbor's house, they probably did not rob a convenience store or something. He could have murdered his wife, <laughs> or she could have murdered him. Anybody can kill. And, and that's the thing a lot of people don't realize. And a lot of times, the defense in the China Arnold trial, who uh, microwaved her baby, was, oh, mother wouldn't do that. But a mother does do but it. But it happens all the time. It does. It happens all the time. It's amazing because we still have stereotypes. I was giving a talk at the Attorney General's conference last year, and a just an old-time, probably 105-year-old <laughs> sheriff said, can you look at this case? I'm like, sure. And I go, okay, I, I don't. what's the deal? It looks like a suicide. My guy swear it's a suicide too, but it can't be. Take a look. Like, okay, what am I missing here, Sheriff? And he says, well, it's a female. She shot herself. And females don't shoot themselves. I'm like, right. Uh, Quote, unquote, yeah. Man, they vote. They drive. <laughs> uh, a lot right. of things have happened to females. But it's just, that's a stereotype. There are no stereotypes. Uh, yeah, well, Lauren Taylor wasn't supposed to, because she was, what, 16 or? Yeah. Is it Laura Lauren Taylor? Laura. Laura Taylor. She was 16 years old, and, like, she's the ringleader of... She was one of the hardest individuals I have ever met. She is one of the few people that I would say are really frightening. Everyone confessed, except her. The thing that really sets the tone for how vicious she was, when you have people in an interview room, we have to be careful. Obviously, the interview rooms are designed, so just you focus on me. Not like this room where if I don't want to talk to you, I can gaze out the window, I can look at the monitor. No, I don't want any distractions. By the same token, you don't want that to work against you to where they can visually escape you, mentally escape you. Right. So you can't leave them sitting in that room for two or three hours. You've got to, hey, would you like to use the restroom? Would you like me to get you something to eat or drink? Do you need to go smoke? So that if you do obtain a confession, it's not, didn't you have them in that room for three hours? And how big is that room, detective? So we went in, I said, hey, uh, would you like to use the restroom? She doesn't say a word, gets up out of the chair, urinates on the floor, and sets back down. I mean, we left the interview room, and I said, it's a good thing we got this one when we did. I mean, who knows what she's capable of? That's nuts. And yeah, and I guess she was the one who told him to shoot most of the people, too, right? Yeah. Did she pick out most of the people? John Huber was one of the uniformed officers that stopped the vehicle they were in. And she was urging Marvellis, shoot him, shoot him, go on and shoot really? him as he was approaching the car. That's really chilling right there, the whole, like... It, it gives you a good insight into her. What made her that way? Did you, do you even get to that point when you do this kind of work, or is it just like... I myself do not, but every psychologist and psychiatrist appointed by the court does. And from all observations, she came from a good family, which is kind of another stereotype. Oh, I had a horrible childhood. Well, I grew up in East Dayton. I don't know if we were upper class, poor, or lower middle class. <laughs> you know, we made it, but certainly a lot of my friends did not. Again, kind of an unfair stereotype. Okay, you came from a good family. Doesn't mean you can't be vicious. Her saying was, let's get some drama. Let's put some drama in our life. And it was at the extent of people's lives. And she put that drama in a lot of the <clears throat> whole city, too. Yeah. Well, it cost her and her, you know, her counterparts their lives, too, in essence. Well, one of them did die. Well, Marvellous Keene was executed. Well, that was another thing. We get a lot of people pro-death penalty, anti-death penalty. And, and I, I'm pro-death penalty. Obviously, it's what I do. <laughs> but I respect the opinions of other people. And there are, are a lot of good people that I know that are just anti-death penalty. But, you know, the thing I say to them is, uh, the first thing they want to send out is, well, it's, it's not a deterrent. And no, it's not. And I even said in, in my interview back then, the execution of this Marvellous Keene in no way or form will prevent the uprising of the next Marvellous Keene. It won't. 
I know that. But somewhere in a civilized society, there has to be consequences for your actions. And grave actions have grave consequences. If Marvellous Keene doesn't deserve the death penalty, why even have it? Daryl Ferguson, another one that I worked on that was executed, and people say, well, did you go to the execution? No. I. It doesn't make me happy that they're executed, but it, it satisfies me. I mean, it really does. They deserve it. Three innocent people in their twilight years, brutally beaten to death and stabbed by Daryl Ferguson just because he wanted some money. Just He knew they would be easy. He could have taken whatever he wanted. They couldn't have stopped him. So you didn't uh, believe the Satan thing with him then? The Satan thing. He just wanted to, he wanted to go down in history with Ted Bundy. Okay. Uh, you know, but it was it, really you don't, you're not a good serial killer when you kill three elderly people. Right, who couldn't fight back. The Satan thing is, uh, I always thought, was a hoax. If you look at his booking picture as opposed to his prison picture, he looks like Satan in his prison picture. I think it was just a facade. You know, there was one thing I wanted to talk to you about. The ring. What is, you make mention of the ring in the book. Can you explain what that ring is about? This is my uh, skull ring. My dad owned a gas station on West 3rd Street in the west side of Dayton. And so I was over between the east side and the west side my whole life. And I always stopped at Ohio Loan, the pawn shop there on 3rd Street. And as I became a police officer detective, I still remained friends with the family that owns it and everything. One day they called me up and they say, we got a ring in that only you will buy. <laughs> so uh, come and take a look at it. And it's, you know, my gold skull ring. I thought, you know, I like that. Because my whole life is death. This kind of symbolizes death. And, you know, in the book, I said, it's not a slap in anybody's face. It's a tribute to all the people who have died that I've investigated, their survivors and everything. It just became, I didn't, I didn't mean it to have any meaning, didn't mean it to be anything. It became a symbol. More people knew me by that skull ring than they did my name sometimes. Do you, you remember talking to Tech Burke? Who? Mm, no, not really. <laughs> Remember Detective Burke, uh, white guy, got, oh, the skull, yeah, skull, yeah, the skull ring, yeah. And I've just worn it for decades. So you wrote the book with a good friend of mine, Lou Greco. Yes. Why do you want to write a book anyhow? By virtue, I do a lot of lectures and things like that. I'm, I'm doing a six-week thing over at UD for the Osher Institute. I teach at Ohio Peace Officers Training Academy, and it always evolves into stories. Hey, can you tell me about this? Can you tell me about that? Started telling stories, and people seemed to enjoy it. And everybody says, oh, you got to write a book. you got to write a book. I had no interest in writing a book. Well, as more books came out, I thought, I might take a stab at this. I don't know. We were on vacation somewhere. We were flying to somewhere. And I thought, I'm just going to jot down some of the things I think might be interesting. And lo and behold, by the time we landed, I had like 63 different things. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Because still today, now that it is a book, other officers, people come to go, hey, did you put this in there? I'm like, no. And there's 100 more cases, 200 more cases. That would make a book. I'm not writing another book. I'll just tell you. <laughs> but, uh, Until this was a big success. Yeah, year, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but it's just like, you know what? People are interested in this. So I just sat down and started writing a book. And it was so easy. I mean, I have to say that was the easy part because I lived it, number one. I had access to all the files, number two. And the chapters just started coming. And I, I'm going to do 40 chapters. No, nobody's going to read that. I'm going to get it <laughs> down to chapters, 30. Yeah. Finally, I got it to, I was satisfied with 28 easy-to-read chapters, a little over 300 pages. But they all tie in, but each one stands alone. Some of them got the axe on chapters. I think this might be pretty good, but I think this is better. And so then I started having other people read it. What do you think? Uh, everybody liked it, but nobody knows. I mean, you know, I'm not an author. I'm not a writer. 
stayed in touch with Lou, and I called him up, and I said, I know you've done some editing for Grizz and some of the guys that have done other books. He said, yeah. He goes, well, yours is like a real book. I mean, it's a lot. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a lot. Send me three or four chapters, and I'll tell you whether or not to go get this copy to Kinko's, or we'll edit it, and you know, you might do all right. So about a week later, he goes, I'm going to be in town. I want to sit down and talk to you. And uh, he goes, I think this is good. He goes, I think this is really good. He goes, I want to be a part of it. And so we uh, formed the team, and I always say, I thought I had a pretty good book, and Lou turned it into what I think is a really great book. I mean, he's a writer. And he, he covered a lot of those, those he stories. He covered a lot of the stories, and he brought, without changing my viewpoint, everything I wrote is there. That's what I love. Everything I wrote is there, but it's better. And it shows the viewpoint of the other people. You know, how was this affecting the community? Something I didn't really write about. I didn't have time to know how the community was affected. I was working it. And it really made it a much, much better book. And after he got on board and, and he edited it and added his touch, everything started to take off. So the name of the show is What Had Happened Was. So I have everybody say the phrase, What Had Happened Was. Okay. And then say what had happened. All right. What had happened was, on a whim, I wrote a book, and now it's actually being published. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the best I can think of. Well, hey, thanks a lot for coming in here. I appreciate well, it. Well, thank you for having me. It was great talking to you. Same here. I told you Doyle had a million stories. You can read more of them in his new book with former Dayton Daily News courts and crime reporter Lou Greco. The book dives into how forensic science and instinct help bring down some of the city's most notorious murderers. You can pre-order Death as a Living on InkShares.com. That's InkShares.com. A direct link can be found in the story notes. The What Had Happened Was podcast was produced by me, Amelia Robinson, and the WHIO Radio Studios. The show's artwork was done by my friend Tori Lyman of TL Creates of Columbus. Until next time, get those Best of Dayton nominations in, and I'm going to see you later. Alligators and crocodiles. Bye-bye.